Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. A scripture reading this morning from the book of Psalms, Psalm 32. A psalm of David. It's appropriate to think of any psalm as from the Old Testament as a song or as a poem. Psalm 32 is called a mascal psalm, and that's the title given, it to, given to it by our oldest English translations. A mascal in Yiddish, using the word as a noun, is a bookworm. A wise person is a mascal. A mascal in the traditional Hebrew text, as in this psalm, denotes a psalm of instruction in the way of wisdom. So this isn't a praise chorus or a worship song. This is a poem written as a way to wise up, to get smarter. This is God speaking to David and as we begin the reading in verse 8, and then David reflecting upon that word that he has heard and responding to it. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or a mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows, David responds now, come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey Him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. The Word of God for the people of God. Dina was not the only thing that has surprised me in airports lately, but imagine my lack of surprise when I read the news a few days ago that a Delta Airlines flight from Grand Rapids, Michigan to Minneapolis, Minnesota was overbooked. It's supply and demand. As the impacts from the pandemic have mitigated, demand for airline seats has risen exponentially this year. We had two years of low demand, after all, and that has now changed. The other side of the economic equation is supply. There are plenty of airplanes in the United States. There are plenty of available seats on our airlines. But there are not enough airline employees, especially pilots. And that's the main problem these days with overbooked flights. A recent headline had 1,200 Delta pilots demonstrating outside of seven different airports from Atlanta to New York, from Los Angeles to the aforementioned Minneapolis. The pilots, just short of going on strike, want a new contract. And that's understandable. In 2022, Delta pilots will clock more overtime hours than in 2018 and 19 combined. And the same, and we really don't want our pilots too tired behind the wheel, do we? And the same is true of multiple employees in multiple positions. Because during the pandemic, thousands of pilots, not just those working at Delta, but industry-wide, took early retirement packages when people stopped traveling. 
So competent pilots are not spit out of a vending machine. It has been impossible for the diminished supply to catch up with the reinvigorated demand. No, I was not surprised to read about a garden variety flight in Grand Rapids being overbooked. What surprised me, what shocked me, per per Jason Ate, who was on the flight, Delta asked eight passengers to disembark because they had eight oversold the flight by eight seats. They needed eight volunteers to give up their flights. And what did they offer them for their inconvenience? A few sky miles? A travel voucher? No. $10,000 each. One of the flight attendants announced over the intercom, if you have Apple Pay, you'll have the money right now before leaving the gate. $10,000. Those lucky savages. Lucky because almost every flight is overbooked these days. And most folks don't get that kind of cash opportunity, do they? And just over the past holiday weekend, this past holiday weekend, U.S. Airlines canceled more than 2,000 flights. If an average of 150 people were on those flights, 300,000 travelers, I seriously doubt any of those airport warriors awoke to the news of their cancellation along with four or five fresh figures added to their Apple Pay account. I didn't. And now we're getting to the real grievance this morning. I was able to miraculously book flights for both my older sons to get home for my mother's funeral a few weeks ago. Blaze was delayed and rebooked trying to get back home, however. Bryce was canceled altogether and had to jump through U.S. Army regulation for delayed return from leave as well as wait days on a flight to get him back to base. I tried to get to Richmond, Virginia to speak at my friend of 25 years retirement two Sundays ago, two Saturdays ago actually. The flight I had booked months ago was rebooked, then canceled, so I tried to rebook from Atlanta, Chattanooga, Birmingham, Montgomery, Dothan, Destin, Panama City, every airport I drove by on my way home, nothing. And then my sister, who spoke so well two weeks ago, couldn't get home on Monday morning as planned, her flight was canceled. And after a day of haggling and two airport visits, we finally got her on a flight home, or at least close to home, to a completely different airport than the one she had departed from. And do you know why Garrett was not here last Sunday? Flight delays and cancellations. No carrier sent me a penny. Or Garrett. Or my sister. Or my son. The shortest wait I had on the phone trying to reach an actual human being was 96 minutes due to much higher call volume than normal. Well, no joke. And in the Richmond-specific case, when I did reach a human being pleading my cause, begging for resolution, this is what he said to me on the other end of the line. Sorry, you just can't get there from here. Here, being Atlanta, Birmingham, Montgomery, Dothan, Panama City, or Destin. It's one of my favorite expressions, you can't get there from here. Though I don't like to hear it from the lips of a Delta booking agent, but what else could he say? When you can't get there from here. As is so often the case, what is true with the trivial is true with the profound. And what is true with the natural is true with the spiritual. 
And what is true with travel can be true in life. You just can't always get there from here. I doubt that many of us who have lived a while have lived anything that resembles a timeline. Now that was a task I had in high school and college in a history class. Make a timeline of your life. Doesn't that sound so neat and clean? Timeline. Like it's all in one straight little linear direction. As if everything is orderly and logical and sensible. Who among us has had a life like that? Like filing a multi-city flight plan and everything is going to go exactly as we think it will. We tell ourselves at 17, 20, 24 years of age, I'll finish school precisely in four years. I'll marry at 28. I'll have 2.35 children by 35. I'll make partner by 40. My mortgage will be paid off by 52. I'll retire at 57 and a half. My spouse, my children, and myself, we will have no major health problems. My, ish- my parents will live into their 90s and die peacefully in their beds. We will have no plans for divorces, miscarriages, car accidents, mental health challenges, untimely pregnancies, estrangement from family, financial setbacks, midlife crises, or cross-country relocations. Well, most people aren't as anal retentive about planning as that, though some are. But the majority of us still, we have this preconceived idea of how we think life is going to go or how it should go. And we may not be terribly specific with years and dates, but we expect the journey to more or less unfold in a specific manner. But life doesn't go like that. You probably won't marry the type of person you think you will. And you might have to try two or three times to get it right. You won't have the kids that will turn out the way you thought they would turn out. Your career won't go the way that you planned. You may not even work in the field that you trained for. You might not live where you thought you would live. That's just how it goes. You end up finding yourself somewhere unable to get there from here. There was a Sufi mystic and poet, a true mascal, a wise man, from almost a thousand years ago, his name was Jalal Adin Muhammad Rumi. And thankfully, most folks just call him Rumi. And you might see quotes of his on little inspiration posters or on yoga studio walls, and that's good, but don't set him aside as an ancient version of Tony Robbins who's just offering cliches about how to empower your life. He was a true sage, a wise man. And one of his best proverbs goes like this. Whoever travels without a guide Needs 200 years for a two-day journey. Isn't that great? Now, do you have 200 years to get to where you were going? No, of course not. You don't have time to make all the necessary mistakes that have to be made to wise up. You don't have time for all the course corrections that will have to be made. You don't have time for all the U-turns that you might have to make with your life. You'll end up exactly at the place where that booking agent said I was. You'll end up not being able to get there from here. You need someone who knows the way. You need someone who can help you adjust when life doesn't go as you planned. You need someone to steady you when everything is shaky. You need help. You need a guide. Think of it like this. Have you ever been on a trip of some kind, 
where a guide was absolutely required. Have you ever been on safari to Africa? Have you ever taken an immersion trip to the Middle East? Have you ever taken a mission trip to Central America? A wildlife viewing trip to Yellowstone or Yosemite? I bet you have. And your experience, your experience was greatly improved if you had a capable guide with you that was helping you understand and navigate the way. So, would you, if you were planning a safari, would you say to yourself, well, I'm going to Africa and I'm going to see all these animals, so what I need to do is get an advanced degree in sub-Saharan biology so that when I get there, I'll know what's going on. Would you, if you're going to the Middle East, to a Holy Land trip, say to yourself, all right, I need to study the history of Near Eastern ancient languages and get a theology degree in the three monotheistic religions so that when I get there, I can understand. No, you wouldn't do those things. You wouldn't if even go into Central America for a week on a mission trip. You wouldn't say, well, pastor, I can't go with you yet because I haven't learned Spanish. Now, some people have said that to me, which is a ridiculous excuse. Now, just tell me I don't want to go. Fine. What you need is the guide who has all that training and experience, life experience, and you just show up and let them lead the way. You don't have to become an expert in the matter. I mean, what would have happened when I got to one of half a dozen airports in the last few weeks, and someone says, oh, sorry, glad you're here, but your flight is canceled, and I had said, I can handle it. Just point me toward one of these planes out here, and uh, I play video games. It really can't be that hard, you know. No one would ever do that. And I wouldn't say, well, I'll be right back in a couple years. I'm going to get my pilot's license. No, I would do none of those things. Those are ridiculous. I would entrust myself to the guide who knows the way. Whoever travels without a guide needs 200 years for a two-day journey. Or as the wise King David says, God will guide you. God will advise you and watch over you. And then this caveat. But don't be like some stubborn mule about it. Mules are stubborn. I know you've heard that in popular legend, but it is true. Spend any time on a farm around these animals and you know it immediately. One of our farming neighbors when I was a teenager had two massive red draft mules, twin brothers. And they were about six feet tall. I don't know how many hands that is in equine talk. But they were about six feet tall at the eyeballs with about three and a half feet of ears above that. And weighed about 1,500 pounds apiece absolutely massive animals, and he was the only one who could do something with them. They sort of did their own thing. And then who is going to stop a seven-foot-tall mule that weighs 1,500 pounds and has a twin brother just like him? Not many people. Here's the thing about a mule. Slide, please. Now, David Miller could have told you this. 
A mule is not a horse. A mule is not a donkey. A mule is the combination of a breeding, a male donkey with a female horse. And what results is a wonder of nature. It's a combination that produces what is called heterosis, where the child takes on the dominant characteristics of each parent and exceeds the abilities of each of those parents. For example, a mule is more sturdy, more sure-footed, more patient, and has more stamina than a horse. And a mule is stronger, bigger, more athletic, and smarter than a donkey. And here's where the stubbornness comes in. The mule is just a little smarter than the average bear. And he is intuitive, and because he's a little smarter, he can see what we little human beings around him are up to. He understands that we are trying to control him. We are trying to get him to do things that he doesn't necessarily want to do. He's smart enough to resist. He's smart enough to want his own way. And mule or not, does anything sound more human than that? It should because we are a sort of hybrid ourselves. We are the unique combination of dust and spirit. Of flesh and soul. There's another psalm of David that speaks to this. Psalm 8. The old English says, Thou, speaking of God, has made man just a little lower than the angels. We're not devils, though we can act that way sometimes. And we're not angels either. We have this hybrid nature that makes us smart. Just smart enough to get in trouble. Just smart enough to resist. Smart enough to want to be in charge. Smart enough to be stubborn. Smart enough to want to go our own way. And yet, not smart enough to always know what is best for us. The answer is not to be less stubborn. That's like telling somebody to stop thinking about pink gorillas. Stop thinking about pink gorillas! Now, what's in your mind right now, right? And we tell people, well, just, you need to stop being so stubborn, but that's not the answer. The answer is to trust. Trust your guide. Trust God. And I know you've heard that before, you know, have a little faith, just trust the Lord. And we treat this kind of advice as most sermons we hear, they go in one ear and out the other. And to be fair, a lot of sermons should probably go in one ear and out the other. Especially when it comes to being told, all you have to do is trust God. Because what I have discovered is when someone tells you, oh, just trust God, it's sort of like a Hail Mary. I've tried everything else to try to get you out of this mess, so I guess you'll just have to trust God. Right? Isn't that how we use it? And there is actually some truth to that. And I think I'll pick this up next week, but I don't want to leave you completely in a a lurch. You're not going to trust God until you must. I wish it was different. 
but it's human nature. We don't trust until we have to. We don't trust until we come face to face with a situation, a disease, circumstance, relationship, person, challenge, or condition that is larger, stronger, and more persistent than we are. And when we come up against that, that is where, where we learn to yield, to let go, to rest, to surrender. So when you get stuck, when you get stranded, when you can't get there from here, that is the beginning of learning to trust if you're not stubborn.